There's a gal by the name of Samantha Burns, and I came upon this illustration. I just wanted to begin by sharing with you. She's a mental health expert, a counselor, a dating consultant, and um, she has a unique way of celebrating her wedding anniversary um, each year. Um, somebody had found out what she had done in an interview with her, and in an interview she said this, I've always been passionate about love and relationships. Um, they bring what they bring so much joy into our world, love and relationships. And for her, love and relationship and her joy is wearing her special wedding dress every anniversary. And this is how that came to be. Evidently, it was on the night of her wedding when Bird said she couldn't accept the idea that she could only wear this dress one time, only once in her life, and then you kind of put it in the closet and leave it there. And she told her, bride, her husband-to-be, she told him this, I'm going to wear... Um, our wedding dress, on our, my wedding dress, on our anniversary uh, as a celebration. And he kind of laughed and said, sure you are. Well, first anniversary, um, they went on a trip, and she wore her wedding dress uh, while she was hitting golf balls. That was how important it was. On the third anniversary, he took her on a sunset cruise, and they were the only ones on the sunset cruise. And so she again wore her uh, wedding dress, and they were in this middle of the room. They were dancing together, and it was a great and wonderful celebration. And uh, she made the, the comment that it, it feels like a, a wedding all over again. And for Samantha, it wasn't necessarily about the dress capades, if you will. It was more about creating a unique tradition in which she had the opportunity to celebrate not just the wedding ceremony, but what, what marriage actually meant. The, the beginning of a relationship together, the, the continuing of a relationship together, this idea of being able to celebrate with great joy this wonderful, wonderful ceremony. Uh, that she was a part of. And so that's what she's done every year on her anniversary. She would wear that wedding dress as uh, a, a celebration of the joy and the affirmation of the marriage relationship and an affirmation of the vows that uh, they experienced and they shared with one another. What a, great, what a great reminder of the importance and the significance of marriage in our day and age. I mean, how many times do you hear people talk about a reference of, well, marriage is just that, that old thing. It's just an old institution. We don't, we don't need to get married. We, don't need to, we, can, we can affirm the relationship. And yet one of the, the first thing that God created before school, temple, before any of that, what did he do? He, he created a family, Adam and Eve. He said, listen, I want you to come together, and I want you to come together, and I want you to experience something wonderful and something beautiful. And it's called a, a wedding, and, and, and God was the one who brought about this wonderful, beautiful institution of marriage. A beautiful picture of what God established, a beautiful picture of what God would have and want for us in the church, if you will. And what we do is, in the New Testament, when we come to the person of Jesus, when we come to the unique person of Jesus being what the, the Bible talks about, him being the bridegroom, we have this idea of, of a celebration. A wedding is a celebration. A wedding is an opportunity for people who love each other to gather together and for people to come together and to, to celebrate the union, something that God has brought together, people coming together. They're being united as husband and wife. And in, in the Bible, it's actually a beautiful time to affirm God's creation, affirm what God has done, affirm God bringing these people together. Weddings are beautiful times of celebration for all that God is and what he's done in the marriage relationship. And I bring that out as an illustration because Jesus talks about himself as a bridegroom in a very, very interesting way. He talks about himself being the bridegroom. In our text this morning, in Mark chapter 2, verse 18, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom, and he refers to the guests. 
How are the guests of the bridegroom supposed to respond? And what I want to do this morning is this. I want to walk through this text with you as, as we looked at the life of Jesus. We looked at the teaching of Jesus. As we get to know Jesus, Mark chapter 2, uh, we're looking at the story of Jesus. How does the story of Jesus relate to my story? How does the teaching and the example, all the things that Jesus, how does, how does that relate to, to my life? And what I want to do is I want to look at, once again, the, the teaching of Jesus about him being a bridegroom and how we as the guests, if you will, of the bridegroom are to respond. And just by way of introduction, in Mark chapter 2, we're in the third of a bunch of controversies. The way that Mark kind of outlined this, he did this introduction of who Jesus is, and he, he gave some wonderful illustrations about the impact of Jesus' ministry. And then he begins to get into some controversies, five controversies. The first controversy we saw last week was this, that, that Jesus had the audacity to say, listen, I can forgive sin. I can do something that only God can do. And the, the religious leaders were dumbfounded. What do you mean you're saying that you can do something that only God can do? You have the audacity to say that you can forgive sin? And Jesus says, yes. And to prove that to you, what I'm going to do is I'm going to raise up this paralyzed man. To demonstrate to you that in myself and who I am in my identity as the Son of Man, I have the, the power, if you will, to forgive sins. Controversy number one. And the second controversy, we looked at a couple, of, a couple of weeks ago. And it's about this, that Jesus is accused. You're just hanging around with the wrong people, Jesus. There should be separation from tax gatherers and uh, all these other kind of, there should be a separation from all these bad people, sinners. What we need to do is, is we need to not associate with those kinds of people. We need to step back from them because what we don't want to do is we don't want to be contaminated by their behavior. We don't want to be contaminated by the association. And again, Jesus speaks to the people and says, by the way, I want to tell you something about who I am. I didn't come to call righteous people, but I come to call broken people, people who need to know and to be reconciled with the Holy God. That's who I came to call. Second controversy that was involved in the life of Jesus about who he is and who he would associate with and how we would bring the wonderful news of being reconciled to a holy God. And so we come this morning to the third controversy. It's this. It's a controversy over, over fasting. We're going to look at this. And in, in, in the, the followers of Jesus, they're, they're following Jesus, and, and they see Jesus, and they see his disciples, and they say, listen, John's disciples are fasting. And the Pharisees are fasting. They're doing all of these spiritual disciplines. But for some reason, your disciples, your followers, they're not fasting. What's the problem here? And they begin to confront him. And what I want to do is I want to walk through the illustration, walk through the story with you. And then when you get to the end, I want to pull out the, the, uh, the, the application of, of why this is in the Bible and why we need to look at this and why we need to understand who Jesus is the bridegroom and us as the guests. So let me just read, beginning Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Notice how they come and they confront Jesus. It says this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came up and they asked Jesus. Interesting. They came directly to Jesus this time. How is it that John's disciples, and by the way, we, we think that from another text, we think that this is actually John's disciples coming to Jesus and confronting him. How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And so in verse 18, we have the context for this controversy. It's a religious practice called fasting. John's disciples, disciples of the Pharisees, they were fasting. And if you're familiar with fasting, basically what they were doing is they were abstaining from food. They were abstaining from eating for a religious purpose. A lot of times it was to maybe grow in their relationship with God. A lot of times it was associated with mourning. 
But when you go back and look at the Old Testament, there's really only one requirement for fasting, and it was on the Day of Atonement, where nationally, as a people, what they would do is they would gather together in, in, in humiliation and a recognition of their sin, recognize that they would need to be reconnected to a holy God. What they would do is they would fast, they would pray, and they would understand what God has done for them in providing a sacrifice for sin, the payment for sin through the animal sacrifice. But that was the only required fast that they were supposed to do. And what we know is this, when you look at the Bible, we know that, well, there's a lot of different times people fasted. Moses, remember him when he, when he went up on the mountain for 40 days twice, he went up on the mountain, and, and he fasted, and he prayed for twice for 40 days. Remember Hannah, this barren woman, every, ten, every uh, year she would go to the temple, and she would go, and, and she didn't have a child, and, and uh, her husband's other wife would, would kind of goad her, and, and tease her and, and speak bad things about her. And she would go, and she would go to the temple, and she would go before the Lord, and she would fast and pray, Lord, will you give me a child? Eventually, God opened up her room, and she was able to have a child. What about David? At the death of Saul and the death of Jonathan, what, what David did is he, he called all the people together and said, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to mourn, we're going to fast. From, from morning to evening, we're going to fast. We're not going to eat anything in, in, in mourning for the death of Saul. The death of Jonathan is two good friends. So, so in our text, following the example of, of Old Testament people, following the example of people who, who fasted, you have the, the religious leaders, John's disciples, you have the Pharisees fasting together. And we don't know exactly why. In one of the texts, it talks about the disciples of, of, of John possibly fasting in, in response to mourning. Maybe because John the Baptist had been thrown in prison. Maybe that's when this is coming out. And, and they're mourning over him being thrown in prison. Or, or maybe it's at the death of John the Baptist. Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. Maybe they're, they're we're fasting and mourning because of that. We, we don't know exactly what's going on. Or maybe it's just because of John's ascetic lifestyle. Remember, camel's hair go, um, and, and uh, locusts and all that. Maybe they're looking at his aesthetic lifestyle, John the Baptist, and maybe they're just saying, well, John pulled away and he fasts in his behavior and the things that he would do. Maybe that was a part of it. We don't necessarily know. But we also know that the, the Pharisees were fasting. You know, I read this, I, I began to ask the question, how did they know how did, how did people know that John's disciples were fasting and the, and the Pharisees were fasting? How did, how did they know that Jesus' disciples were not fasting? How do we know? Well, maybe because if we understand something about the Pharisees in their religious life and the way that they interacted with their God, maybe we'd have a better understanding of what was happening in their life. See, fasting to them had become something mechanical. Fasting then had become something just ritualistic. They would simply pull away, they would fast, not necessarily to foster a relationship with God, not necessarily to mourn, not necessarily to be sorry for their sin, but become a mechanical thing to do in order to earn favor with God. And not necessarily because they wanted God to recognize and see what was going on inside of their heart, but what they began to do was all of these things, praying, giving, and fasting in a mechanical way to earn favor with God. So when they would give, religious leaders would come and they would, they would take their money in the temple and they would throw it in there and they would make a big sound out of it. And they would say, listen, we tithe 10% of all that we have. We even tithe other ways because we want people to see and acknowledge that we give. Unfortunately, their giving was to be seen by men. And what would they do? They would pray. They too would pray. They would maybe go to the temple. Maybe they would go to the temple square. They would go someplace else. And they would offer long-winded prayers in order to be seen by men. How righteous and godly they did. They'd taken their religion and become formal 
It was all about them being seen by other people and being perceived as being spiritually mature and growing. And they did the same thing with fasting, only they would do it a little bit differently. That they would change their appearance. They would wear something or they would put something on and they would look like they were in mourning and they would walk around and they would tell people that they were fasting. And they, they began to fast on two important days, the days when the temple area was absolutely filled so that they could go to the temple area and show everybody how wonderful they were and how spiritual they were because they were simply fasting. And they hoped that God would somehow, some way, take notice of this ritual and bring his favor upon them. Unfortunately, what they did is they wanted to be seen by others as being religious and holy and all of those other kinds of things. There was no sense of humiliation. There was no sense of repentance. There was no thought of the need for forgiveness of sin. There was no thought of dealing on the inside of what was going on in their lives and reconciling their relationship with God, coming to him, fasting in such a way that they focused their thoughts, their minds, and their attention on who Jesus Jesus is, who God was, and drawing a relationship with them. So when John's disciples and the followers of Jesus, they come, they observe that Jesus' disciples are not, they're not fasting. They're not doing all the religious things. They're not doing all the things that they do. So they come to Jesus and they confront him. Why? Well, listen, if you're this rabbi, if you're this wonderful teacher, if you're this guy who's spiritually in touch with God, why are we doing all of these spiritual disciplines? But why are you not fasting? And why are your disciples not fasting? In other words, the implication is, Jesus, there's something wrong with you and the way that you relate to God. And notice how Jesus responds to them in verse 9. He simply asks them a question. He gives them a word picture, if you will. Just the way that Jesus deals with people. He doesn't come out and flat explain to them, but he gives them a word picture that probably has something deeper, the meaning has something deeper about who he is and the way that he would relate to people. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he was with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. Now listen, I understand this seems like a little bit odd, the idea of a bridegroom. Uh, he's, He's only asked about fasting. What in the world is Jesus alluding to? How would he respond in such a way? Why is it so different about this? But understand, that's the way that Jesus spoke. Jesus spoke at times very, very absurd, if you will, in his absurd ways. In chapter 2, verse 5, he said this, I have the authority to forgive sin. That was absurd to the people. They didn't understand and know what was going on. In chapter 2, verse 17, it talks about, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Another absurd way of Jesus relating to the people, getting them to think on an entirely different level. In chapter 2, verse 28, he's going to say, listen, I am ultimately the Lord of the Sabbath. What Jesus does is he comes to try and expand their understanding of who he is, what he is going to do for them, and going to the cross and offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. And he's trying to get them to know and understand who he is and the depth of his understanding. He's going to go and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. So what does he do? He uses this idea of a, of a bridegroom, a wedding, an institution that God created, two people coming together in a committed marriage relationship, husband and wife, understanding that, that God is the one that ultimately brought them together. What God has brought together, let no man separate. The very, very foundation, if you will, for society is a family, a husband and wife and a family, the very foundation of society. And, and Jesus goes back and he points them to this beautiful institution and he alludes to a wedding. And they would know the beauty and the power of a wedding. Listen, they're not going down to Las Vegas and getting hitched. It's not something as simple as that. What, what they're talking about in this marriage is this betrothal period where 
the, the husband or the, the man would go and he would, he would go to the other family and he would sit down with the family and maybe they would draw up a marriage contract and maybe there's a bride price that would be paid and he would go down, he would sit down and they would figure that out. And then, and then he would come back home and he would stay in his home for approximately a year. And he would stay there and he would work with his family and he would be preparing the family, preparing his house for this time when they would be future. They would be married together. And, and then maybe the, the third part is this, this surprise. On a day when she didn't really know, there'd be the trumpets blaring and they would, they would gather together and it was time for the wedding ceremony. And they would go and they would have the ceremony and then he would bring them back to to the house. He would bring the couple would come back to the house where they would consummate the marriage. And for seven days, a ceremony, and they would celebrate and they would rejoice because of the beauty of this marriage relationship. God bringing people together in a mighty and powerful way. And in Jewish tradition, there was this beautiful celebration. The bride and the bridegroom coming together. That marked a time of new relationship. Knowing and understanding that ultimately God is the one who brought us together. The husband and wife come together, and there's going to be new relationships, not only for the couple, but new relationships for the family. And notice again how Jesus responds to this idea of fasting in verse 19. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast when he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. Jesus responds with the question about fasting with his own question to get them to think on a little bit different level. Is it really appropriate for the guests at a wedding to mourn and to be sad and to, and to fat. I mean, most of you know that um, our, our son, Drew, is getting married in about two weeks. It's a, uh, the, the final, uh, we have four children, the th- other three are married, so this is like the final wedding ceremony for us. So we're like singing the hallelujah chorus and all that. And I can talk all about him today because he's not here, you know. But we, they've been in the last couple of months, we've been in the planning stages, they've been in a planning stage. And in the midst of the stress, in the midst of all that, it really is a fun time. It really is a time of celebration because we recognize, they recognize that God is bringing together these two people in an institution ordained by God, that God is bringing them together to be a, to ultimately, by the way, what is, what is marriage between a husband and wife in the Bible? Ultimately, according to the book of Ephesians, it's a picture of Christ in the church, Ephesians chapter 5. The marriage relationship is ultimately a picture of Christ in the church. And by the way, it goes all the way back to Genesis and the creation. So we recognize that as they gather together, it's going to be this joyous celebration. Imagine me showing up, and I look really different. I'm not dressed appropriately, and my hair is disheveled more than it normally is, and I've got stuff on my face. And as the wedding goes on, a ceremony goes on, and there's all of this wonderful joy, I kind of have this solemn look on my face. Clint, what's wrong with you? Fasting. Huh? Yeah, fasting. You know, you're kind of wondering, what's he fasting for? I mean, is he not approving of this marriage or what? It is something, what in the world is going on? Why is this guy fasting? Well, you would look at that and see how absurd it was. It would be absolutely horrible to do because a wedding is a time of celebration. A wedding is a time for people to gather together and to be happy with who God is, what he's done, and bringing two people together in this wonderful institution of marriage. It's a beautiful picture of God's design for life, God's design for the family. And what Jesus, in responding to this idea of him being the bridegroom, what he wants to do is he wants to get them to think on an entirely different level. He probably could have answered this in a more direct way. But he does this idea of, of I am a bridegroom. What, what, what let that contrast for the people? Maybe. Maybe something in the Old Testament reveals something about God and his relationship with Israel, and how he responded to them. Isaiah chapter 
62, verse 5. Notice how the people relate to God as their, the groomsmen, if you will. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5. Notice what God is doing in getting the attention of the people. As a young man marries a maiden, marries a maiden, so your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, what's going to happen? So will God rejoice over you. God is likened to a bridegroom, and he's rejoicing over the nation of Israel. Isn't that a beautiful picture of a relationship with God? By the way, when you go through the Old Testament and you see what happens when people get a little bit wayward with God and they walk away with God, how is that described? Adultery. See, what we have in the Old Testament is this beautiful picture of this relationship with God and the nation of Israel, that I'm going to take care of you. I have a covenant relationship with you. And by the way, in the context of Isaiah chapter 62, the people are going to rebel against him. They're going to walk away. God's going to bring judgment on the city of Jerusalem, but he's not going to give up on them. And there's a promise here that I'm going to one day come back to you. I'm going to one day love you. I'm not going to send you off. Because you are my covenant people, I love you and I care for you. I'm going to reunite you and I'm going to bring you back. This idea of God being the bridegroom implies relationship and implies possession. And so what is Jesus doing here? He's implying that he is the bridegroom in the same way that God has that unique relationship with the nation of Israel in the past. In other words, we're learning something deeper about the nature and the character of who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, he's the Son of Man, and he's the long-awaited hope of the people of Israel, if you will. And by the way, John the Baptist picked up on this at the beginning of his ministry. He picked up on this idea that Jesus was going to be the bridegroom. John chapter 3, verse 28, notice what he writes. And by the way, John is the forerunner, right? He's going before the Messiah. He's going before Jesus. He's telling people that the Messiah has come. Notice how he describes this relationship with Jesus. John chapter 3 says this. By the way, they were asking him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one that we should be looking forward to? And he affirms that he's not. He says this. You, John the Baptist says this. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. This joy is mine, it is now. John the Baptist testified that he was the friend of the bridegroom. And what brought him? I'm a guest of the bridegroom. And what I'm going to do is my job is to serve Jesus and to honor Jesus and to love Jesus and to point people to Jesus. And ultimately says this, he must increase and I must decrease. He has this wonderful, beautiful responsibility to point people ultimately to the beauty of who Jesus is as the bridegroom of the church. The bridegroom is present with them. And it's a time of great joy for them. That's why they should be celebrating. And that's what the guests should be doing. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of joy. Look at what God is doing. Look at what Jesus is doing in all of these things. So there's a hymn. And I, I'd never heard of this hymn. It's called The Sands of Time. And uh, the, the other name of it is, is called The Sands of Time or Seeking. Are sinking, And it was written by a gal by the name of Anne Ross Cousin, and she was from Scotland. It was written a long, long time ago. It was first published in 1857. But the way that she came to write this um, hymn is this, that there's a guy by the name of Sam Rutherford, and he lived in the 1600s, and he was a pastor, and he experienced a lot of difficulties and challenges of life. And he wrote a bunch of letters 
in the 1600s. So what she did, what this gal did, and she began to read these letters and to read about his life and to read about all the difficulties and all of the challenges. So for 200 years, people have been sitting on these letters. She began to read them. And as she read about his life and she read about the difficulties and challenges that he went through, she composed to him over 19 verses of this hymn. And I want to point out one verse that I think relates well to the context here. Notice what it says. The bride's eyes, not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on the king of grace. Not on the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. The church, as the bride of Christ, looks to Jesus in all her glory. And this hymn was a wonderful testimony based on the life and experiences of this guy by the name of Sam Rutherford seeing this and seeing his love and devotion and his honor for Jesus, wanting to preserve that, this gal composed this wonderful hymn about keeping our eyes, our thoughts, our attention, our focus on the unique person of Jesus Christ. This hymn's a beautiful testimony of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And in verse 19, Jesus understood that. And he said, listen, I want you to understand the true nature of who I am and what I've come to do as the bridegroom. In your belief, in your fasting, in all the things that you're doing, in your praying, in your giving, in your fast, you think that you can earn favor with God. Ultimately, I'm the one who come. I am God's unique son. I have come. God is with you. Now it's a time of rejoicing, time of celebration. But Jesus said there will be a time of fasting. There will be a time of sorrow. Look again at verse 20. But the time will come when the bridegroom, notice what it says, when the bridegroom will be taken from you, and on that day they will fast. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, talks about the bridegroom what? Being taken away. Being taken away. I, I wonder if in the mind of the author, he's, he's taking us back to the book of Isaiah and, and, and the, the, the beautiful description, Isaiah chapter 3, of the death of Jesus on the cross. Isaiah chapter 3, prophesying of the time when Jesus would come and offer himself as a sacrifice. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8. Notice the words used there in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8. It says this, by oppression and judgment, he was what? Taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of living for the transgression of my people he was stricken. Isn't that interesting? Isaiah chapter 53 is a graphic description, a prophecy of the suffering servant, of how he will come and offer himself as a brutal sacrifice on the cross. And here, in Mark chapter 2, the author uses the same type of language to point to what? He's going to be taken away. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to go to the cross and offer himself as a sacrifice. The bride's going to come. It's a time of rejoicing. But ultimately, the bride's going to come and he's going to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin so that we can be reconciled to a holy God. We, as the church, celebrate and the bridegroom, what he's done. There is a new reason, if you will, according to Jesus. A new reason for fasting. But he doesn't tell us why. He simply goes into another illustration. And I think this is the point of the application for it. This is where and what we're to understand. That the old has passed away. And that because of Jesus being the bride, uh, the, the, the bridegroom, and us being the bride, there is a new way for us to live. Not in the old ways, but in the new ways that Jesus wants and has for us in him. Look at verses 21 and 22. This is the illustration. This is the application. No one sews a patch of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. 
and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wines into new wineskins. Listen, no one could illustrate truth better than Jesus. He used a wide variety of ways to try and drive home his point. And I think that's what he's doing. He's trying to drive home a point, a contrast between the old and the new. And since Jesus was so good at giving illustrations, I'm going to give you an illustration. But it's not as good as Jesus. But I think it makes the point. So I'm the oldest of four boys. And we were boys. We were all boys. And we did all kinds of stuff. Boy things. We were just terrors. And my mom would buy us clothes. And they did not last very long at all because we just wore them. And I vividly recall my mom buying us jeans. They weren't Levi jeans. They were some kind of Sears and Roebuck jeans. And they didn't last very long at all. And what would eventually happen is this. We'd wear right through the knees. Right through the knees. So we'd walk around these holes in our jeans, and it drove my mom crazy. And some of you are not old enough to know this, but there was a remedy for that. And you know what the remedy was? Buy a patch kit. And that's what my mom did. She would go buy a patch kit, a brand new patch kit, and she would take these old jeans, and she would put them on the ironing board, and she would iron that patch on the old jeans. And if you know anything about it, you walked around like this for about two days. Why? Because the patch was there. And the patch was just so, it was so hard. And you, walk, you literally walked around like this. And then eventually, you know what would happen? The patch would come off. And it would separate. Why? Because the jeans are old. And the patch was new and it would separate. And they didn't last very long. And sometimes you're walking around and the, and the patch is just halfway on. And, and I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about old, uh, old cloth. He's talking about new wineskins. He's making a contrast between the old and the new. And there's something new because of the bridegroom of Jesus. There's something new about who he is. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. There's newness in the life of Jesus. And that's why we have joy. And that's why we celebrate. And that's why we we look at him, and we honor him, and we love him for who he is. There is a new reality, a new reality in the person of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is here. It's in our midst. The Bible talks about the kingdom of God being inside of you. In other words, the rule and the reign of Jesus and who he is and what he says is come and he rules and he reigns in my heart. Death has been paid for. I have to deal with that. He died. Jesus died once for all. He ascended into heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit of God to live inside of us. And because of his death, Satan has been taken care of. Sin has been taken care of. And uh, death and darkness have been taken care of. All of that is a new reality because of who Jesus is. And, what he, and we don't have to go back to that old guard. The Jewish people didn't have to go back to the temple, the sacrifices, all of those old ritualistic kind of things. What we have is now we have this thing called a new life. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. We have this new life principle living inside of us where God is ultimately conforming us to the image of his son, helping us become more like Jesus, and the Spirit of God is living inside of us. And because of that, we are, are we living in light of the newness of Jesus? Or are we just, ah, I've been there, done that, I've done all of those things, I, I, I know where I'm going, I know what I'm doing. The Bible talks about this newness of Christ every day we can experience. So I was talking with a friend of mine this past week whose mom is getting older, probably going to die, 90-something years old. So I, I was talking about the family. Well, how, how is the family relating to all of this? How is, how, how is your family members relating to the fact that she's getting older and she's not able to do something? He said this. He said, they're panicked. They're freaked out. They're fearful. 
Why are they fearful? Because their worldview holds to only what we have here. and It's only what we can grab onto here and now. So what they're going to do is they're going to grab onto mom and they're going to hang on to her and they're going to do whatever they can, even at 97 years old, they're going to do whatever they can to keep her right here so they don't experience the tragedy of death. And what the Bible says to us is this, there is a new way for you. The Spirit of God has come to live inside of us. We are new creations in Christ. The Bible says the old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. I am new on the inside. And and the Bible talks about a new self being created in what? The very image of God. That you and I ultimately are being created to be like God. That the old sacrifices, they're they're not going to do and that, that because of who Jesus is, as the ultimate sacrifice for sin, my conscience is clear. And there's no f- condemnation to those who are in Christ. There's a new way for you and I to live. There's a new and living way opened up to us, what? Through the death of Jesus on the cross. And he says, by the way, there's a new command that I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you love also. In other words, the relationships that you and I have with our spouses, our family, and friends, take on a new dimension because of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And that becomes the example of how we're to live. Ephesians chapter 5 says this, Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love. How do you do that? By looking at Jesus' death on the cross, just as Christ loved you and gave himself up. That's the newness in which we live. And you know, the future is this. I'm going to have a new body. And there's going to be a new heaven. And there's going to be a new earth. And there's going to be a new Jerusalem. And we're going to live forever and ever in the presence of God. He has made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. All of that is new because of the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. And every day we get to celebrate that Christ is with us. The Spirit of God is inside of us. So it doesn't matter what I'm going through. Maybe I have a, maybe I have a problem with my job. Or maybe there's a, a relationship over here. That's, or, or maybe something else is, is not right. I, I can look to and I can trust Jesus and the newness of who he is because he's ultimately praying for me. The book of Hebrews talks about he's interceding for me in ways that we can. And that's the newness of who Jesus is and what he's comforted. And by the way, isn't there going to be a wedding ceremony in the future? The lamb wedding ceremony of the lamb where we will all gather together under the umbrella of God's kingdom and celebrate what the Lamb has done for us and offering himself as a payment. So, as guests of the bridegroom, how are you doing? Is there joy in your life because of what Jesus has done? Are we celebrating who he is? Are, are we not hanging on to the old? Are we allowing the new things to come, the new teachings to come, in alignment with Scripture, the new ways to live in accordance with Scripture? Or are we just so hung up on the old that we cannot break? Now, don't walk around with that patch on your knee crippled because you cannot respond respond to the newness of who you Father, thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the newness that we have, the new life that we have. And Father, I thank you for the presence of Jesus in our life. The presence of Jesus today, Lord. Your word says this. This is the newness of the kingdom. Where two or three are gathered together in your name, you are here with us. Father, thank you for the present reality of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And Father, as I look at my brother Gary, and I understand what's going on in the life of Cindy Miller, 
in the lives of so many people. I thank you that we have the present reality of Jesus living with us, that we have the Spirit of God living inside of us to encourage us, to build us, to teach us. And Father, we have the family of God to come alongside and help us. Father, we are merely the guests, and we want to honor and glorify you for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name I pray.